A note before we begin. This episode includes conversations about depression, post-traumatic stress disorder and mental ill health. If you or anyone you know needs someone to speak with about any of these issues, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue. And I look back and I think, oh my gosh, we were such babies. We really didn't understand the enormity of what she was going through and how properly to support her. And I just wish so much that we could go back and turn back the time and do things differently. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this episode. This week, we're taking you into the belly of the Grazy Her team and flipping the mic, so to speak. Emily Herbert's silky words have graced the pages of our magazine for four years, and last year she joined the Life on the Land podcast team. But we haven't heard much from her this year because Em gave birth to a beautiful boy, Huckleberry, in January. Today, she's our guest. And let me tell you, the more I get to know this woman, the more my awe and admiration grows. She's ridden out a really tough year in 2020 as a self-confessed COVID refugee who got married, moved back in with her parents and then fell pregnant. But in the scheme of things, 2020 hasn't been her toughest year yet. Em has lived through a lot. When she was at university, her best friend, Maddie, took her life, an experience that sliced Em in two. It left her with post-traumatic stress disorder, and as she continues to work her way to better mental health, she's also become a smart, sensible, and incredibly articulate advocate for this important issue. And we do talk lots about this. As a caveat, I will say that Em is not a health professional and this is her version of her story. All the advice given in this interview is from Em's individual perspective. We did start on a lighter note though, because she needs to be congratulated on the birth of Huckleberry. And I wanted to learn more about what her life is like now with a baby in tow. Thank you. (laughs) So fun. I feel like I already know him because I see him every day (laughs) and I think lots of people might feel like that because he's such a gorgeous baby. Have you really loved doing doing that, that point of connection through Instagram? Oh, my gosh. I've been spamming the bejesus out of everyone and I feel like if people aren't into sausage dogs or babies, they can unfollow me because that's pretty much 100% of my content. <laughs> I have total cute aggression with Huck and I, my, my husband Adam says that I'm pretty biased, but I'm pretty sure he could be a baby model. I'm sure everybody thinks the same thing when they have children. Um, but, yeah, I have really loved sharing our little journey on Instagram and I love the the connections that that brings. I have so many people get in touch and say what I've shared has really resonated with them. I I share a little bit about what motherhood has been like for me. And I don't, I certainly don't think that my experience is unique. I think it's a very universal experience, but when you're deep in the trenches, I think it can be quite reassuring to know that you're not alone. And I've had quite a lot of people reach out and even though it's such a curated platform and mine is certainly no different, it's a lot of pretty pictures, uh, I do think that I try and be authentic with what the experience actually has been like for me and, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I think it gives permission for others also to open up about their own journey. You've done it so beautifully. So tell me what what has it been like? Has motherhood blowing your socks off in ways you didn't expect it to? It has totally blown my socks off. I think I had a lot of, well, I did have a lot of trepidation through a pregnancy and I think it had a lot to do with how crazy 2020 was and our pregnancy was unexpected and we had led such nomadic lives previously. So 
I was really worried about how it would affect my creativity, how it would affect our independence, my own independence. And then this little person has come along and exploded everything, all my preconceptions, all my preconceived ideas. Um, yeah, it's like a maternal switch has really flicked and I'm completely obsessed. I also, I don't think I was expecting the crazy nuance of motherhood that you can kind of have it all at once. Like uh, it's this push and pull of this crazy love and this frustration and grief of my previous life and my body. And then this all consuming joy about this little person that we've created and, and how he's shaped our lives. Yeah. It's been a, a real trip. Such a huge shift for anybody. And I really love following your journey because I feel like you put it into words so beautifully now we're talking no, you. to you um where are you at the moment I'm interested in you're living in Tamworth but this is not necessarily how you had planned it so how does Tamworth and your life there look at the moment yeah I would describe um living here as the longest most family enmeshed honeymoon of anybody's lives probably <laughs> we are total COVID refugees at the moment so we're living with my parents um, they have 180 acres just outside Tamworth and my husband Adam is Welsh and uh, long story short in 2018 we moved from Wales to Botswana and then from Botswana to New Zealand kind of skipping around because of visa issues and we were living in Wanaka in the South Island last year and in March we came over to Australia to get married on my parents property and COVID hit and the borders closed and this insane reality kind of ensued and we have been stuck here. We did apply three times to get back to New Zealand but I could go back as an Australian resident but Adam couldn't as he was British even though he had a working visa. So we left our jobs and our house full of stuff and two cars and our lives and we couldn't get back and then we fell pregnant and uh, it slowly became too late for me to travel so we decided to stay here and my aunt who is Kiwi very kindly flew down to Wanaka to our house and packed it up and so we spent a week uh, on FaceTime late last year packing up this house from afar and our life and I I do feel a bit of grief for that I don't feel like I had closure for what was a really magnificent year and a bit living in Wanaka in that beautiful community um, so yeah I do really miss it but in a way there's been so many silver linings and I feel like the universe has really put us where we're meant to be because it has been incredible living in the commune and welcoming Huckleberry. Oh, the commune life. So tell me a little bit about, this is such a, this is such a unique situation, although I suppose it has been replicated thousands and millions of times over all over the world because of COVID. But here you are newly married and then pregnant and then with a newborn mm. living in your parents' mm. home with your new husband. What's, what's that been like? Um, I don't think my brain has really caught up with what has happened. At the time in March last year, um, the we you know we had fifty people coming over from the UK for our wedding, and it was meant to be this amazing opportunity for all the people we loved the most in the world to meet and party and get to know each other and bring together the communities. Um, but then at the time, it seemed like a very insignificant. Uh, thing to happen considering the life and death of COVID and what was happening around the world. And uh, so we definitely laughed more than we cried. It just felt very surreal. Oh. And so I think I'm mourning uh, our big day more now than I did at the time because I just felt lucky that we were able to have our intimate, you know, ceremony and uh, our immediate family and Adam's parents um, happened to be able to get into the country six hours before the borders closed. So we felt really lucky that we were still able to push ahead. Um, and yeah, the cards were just thrown up and, and have landed where they have. And I think we've made the, the best of it. And uh, as two freelancers at the beginning of the pandemic, Adam is a sculptor. I'm a freelance writer. 
and work kind of shriveled up and we were thinking, wow, this is, this is going to be pretty tough. But extraordinarily, the arts have been so well supported and I think people uh, perhaps are channeling their resources towards content and also towards beautification and towards art and, and sculpture. And so Adam's just been working his socks off. He's had lots of commissions and, and I've been in such a fortunate position where I've, I've had more work than I can poke a pointy stick at working from home from my parents, um, you know, little office space. So it has been a pretty crazy time, but we're so privileged to be in the position we have been in. And I am such a proponent for commune living. I think we're doing it wrong. I think, you know, having parents just down the hallway, um, seeing their joy with Huck has definitely doubled my joy. And it's just lucky that we all get along so well. I I know it's not for everyone, but it certainly has worked for us. Tell me how your commune life sort of works for you. Like, do you... um... In a, in a cooking sense and in a daily routine sense and do you do everything together and how do you carve out time away from each other? I think probably uh, we don't carve out time away from each other. <laughs> that is an on, That is a work in progress and I have to say I've married the world's most patient man. He is very close with my family. We've been together on and off for 10 years um, and he being a UK citizen uh, lived with us when we first started dating I think we'd been seeing each other uh, for a month and he moved in home at home mm-hmm. when I was 21 so we know each other very well um, I would say that the codependency is quite strong on my behalf and it is tough I, I feel like we haven't had an opportunity to really cement our newly wed roots before welcoming the baby and being at home. But, yeah, in a practical sense, we do everything together. Um, You know, we we cook together and do our washing and mum and I, uh, you know, if one person's doing something for themselves, they tend to do it for everybody else. And Adam's super handy, so he's out on the place. And Dad works away a lot, so... Uh, Adam has kind of, he often is referred to as everybody's husband because if the <laughs> fence is down, then my sister will be yelling, where's Adam? Or <laughs> mum will come into the room and say, Ads, I was thinking. And Adam's like, I know that what that is code for. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, but it's not forever. So we are relishing this opportunity to raise our baby for the for this time uh, all together. And it's it's beautiful really what does the future look like how could you ever plan when everything is so uncertain still it is impossible to plan we have some rough ideas in place the previous plan was to live in New Zealand until uh, Christmas that's just been and then we were going to move back to Wales and live there for a little while with Adam's family Uh, but obviously it's pretty pandemic-y over there. So we're waiting to see what happens. Uh, Adam has lots of work and uh, he's playing polo this year here. So I would say that we will be here for at least a year and then potentially uh, we'll move over to Wales for a little while next year or when we can. But it's all kind of up in the air and, and the best laid plans and all of that change. So we're, we're being fluid and trying to adapt as, as things unfold. Well, tell me a little bit about your childhood because, in a sense, it's not dissimilar. I know you did move around a bit. We did, and we did have to be relatively nimble. So my dad was, and to some extent still is, a professional polo player. So we moved around following the polo season. So I was born in the UK, and then we moved to Australia and then New Zealand and then back to Australia, and we would go over to the UK and France uh, with the polo. So my sister and I were total polo brats. We just grew up on the sidelines. And then my younger sister came along when I was 10. And it was a really amazing childhood. It was very varied. And I think because of uh, going to a number of different schools and, and meeting so many different people from all walks of life, I think it really opened our eyes to what was 
uh, out there in the, the greater world, probably more so than the typical uh, country Australian kid. So um, I think it, it definitely made me more gregarious and interested in people and able to have conversations with uh, people from a diverse back, range of backgrounds and and I think it also made it easier for me to give things a go because I always had this sense that there was infinite possibilities or, you know, a huge number of opportunities out there and why shouldn't it be you to give them a go? Why not? So it definitely gave me a greater sense, I think, of, of seizing things and, and saying yes but also I think it, it gave me a, um, a real attachment to the familiar. So once I kind of land, I, I find it hard to let go. Mm, that's so interesting. And so growing up, how did you feel about uh, friends and community and things? Were you forever shifting or did you find that within your polo crew? We definitely had a strong community. I think because it was just Jamie, my middle sister and I for a while we lent on each other heavily and probably that has helped to forge very strong friendship because mm. she was my stable person no matter where we lived and equally with Lucy my little sister we're, we're the best of friends and we're very lucky so I think we lent on our family and and home was very much where the family was rather a sense of rooted place um, so wherever our feet were and our the heart was that's where home we considered home and then we would go back to Gunnedah where my mum's parents are based and my mum's extended family is and that has become a real sense of home because we would go back for pony camp every year and uh, the Gunnedah show and so for me that's very familiar and I hold a lot of sentimental attachment to Gunnedah because of that and because that was our fixed permanent uh, sense of yeah, a sense of permanency amongst the, the fluid fluidity of moving around. And so during your schooling, did you have any sense or inkling of what you wanted to be, what you wanted to become? I think it was probably more a sense of what I couldn't do because I was so hopeless at maths and science. So <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so English and the humanities was the was where I excelled and I enjoyed so much. So I think it was always probably going to come out in the wash eventually because I um, couldn't do anything else really. I I really loved school and I pretty easy, uh, probably more socialising than studying, but I had beautiful friends and was recently reasonably academic and found it quite fun and easy and I was really lucky to do so um so I think probably journalism was inevitable and writing and storytelling because that's what I always enjoyed I remember when I first came across you Em and it was through Grazy Her through the article that you wrote on Christine Ferguson I was just blown away by how beautifully put together that piece and I'm interested to know, have you always practised writing? Has it been something that's been in you for a long time or is it just something that you're talent, very talented at? I was really into creative writing in high school and loved it and it was so over the top and overly descriptive it actually is cringeworthy to read now <laughs> but I would get in the flow and I just would love penning short stories and letting my imagination kind of run wild and I was always a voracious reader which I think helps so much with just unconsciously understanding sentence structure and description and I was always very moved by lyricism and and beautiful prose. So I think it was uh, something that was innately practiced just through just reading and reading and reading and then writing creatively. And then when I studied journalism and I got out into the workforce, I was in news originally. So newspapers and then TV and broadcast. And I think when you have a minute 30 package for 
the 6 p.m. bulletin, you don't have the time to wax lyrical. And so that really taught me to become more concise and to choose carefully and to cut the fat. And I think that was really great training. Um, but I think definitely the reading and, and the writing early set me in good stead. We'll be back in just a moment. But now, a word from today's sponsor. SG Off-Road. Understand it all. They've been stuck on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere with little kids in tow. They've rushed around getting vehicles into servicing, forgotten the booked dates and understand the importance of having someone to help take care of the problem. SG Off-Road are the little guys gone big. Founded in 2002, they put the humanity back into vehicles' needs, mixing impeccable automotive care with an incredible empathy for who's behind the wheel and daily life. An ARB stockist with two stores in South Gippsland and a huge range of courtesy vehicles, they're available for their customers no matter what. Whether in their workshops, driveway, stuck in the paddock or even with electrical issues on the Tanami track. Whether it's leaning against the bull bar for a yarn or rocking a brightly coloured conversation starting shirt for mental health, there's really anything they say no to when it comes to vehicles and those that drive them. Beyond the wheel bearings and four-wheel drive setups, SG Offroad are more than just mechanics and accessories. They become a slice of people's lives and truly love what they do. SG Offroad, just get life. So I wanted to ask you, Em, about um, your university days. It was a huge turning point in your life Um, and sadly for a really, really tragic reason. Are you able to share that story with us? Yeah, absolutely. I studied journalism at UNSW in Sydney and I went to college there. And it was very much a college full of country kids. So there was, uh, you could spot the college kid because they were wearing a shearer's singlet and oh. pluggers amid a sea of, of Sydney ciders. And I had an incredible first year and a half there. There was lots of partying, lots of fun. The fresher 15, I definitely ballooned with all the, the cheap goon and <laughs> there was a little bit of learning thrown in. Uh, and it was just a really fun, joyful, carefree time. And it was there that I became very close with a beautiful girl called Maddie, who was also from Tamworth. And we had crossed paths a couple of times prior to university, uh, but we became incredibly close in college. And uh, Maddie suffered from depression, which she was treating with professional help. But uh, tragically, she did take her own life in college. Uh, just after we had actually driven back to uni from the mid-year break, uh, back from Tamworth to Sydney. And uh, she had just spoken at my 21st in that those July holidays. And then um, three weeks later, I, I spoke at her funeral and it was completely devastating. It was devastating for her beautiful family and her enormous network of friends and for the college community and for me. And it completely splintered me and and it really did shape my path from there but yeah I would never have anticipated that it was possible for Mads to go down that path Um, I think I was very naive and sheltered and I look back and I think oh my gosh we were such babies we really didn't understand the enormity of what she was going through and how properly to support her and I just wish so much that we could go back and turn back the time and do things differently. Tell me about her. What was Maddie like? Uh, I would I describe Maddie as a total light. You know, she really drew she drew people to her like a like moths to a flame. She was bubbly and uh, the life of the party and, and so outgoing and yet she was also incredibly nurturing. She was the mother hen of our little friendship group and she was such a good friend and always there with a, 
a cuppa and um, she was very thoughtful. And she was a real anomaly in that she was incredibly feminine and ladylike. Um, She loved beautiful things and tailored clothes and yet she was a total dag. Mm -hmm. And when we went to dress up parties, we would just look so unfortunate looking but it was fun and she was funny and she could she was studying mining engineering despite being this very petite blonde ladylike woman so she could keep up with the boys with everything be it banter or uh, sports chat and uh, she just had such a cracking sense of humour and, and the most infectious laugh that would just ring across the campus you could hear Mads before you saw her and we loved each other very much. And when she told me about her diagnosis um, of depression, probably the towards the end of the first year, maybe it was early, second year university, I remember feeling quite scared because it was my first experience with mental illness. Um, but I also remember making a very conscious choice that I was going to be there with her every step of the way, what I thought would be you know, an ongoing recovery and management, but for the rest of our lives, so to speak. And I I just, you know, thought that things would be different and I wish that she was here now and we were going to each other's weddings and having babies together, but that unfortunately wasn't the case. Mm. It's so sad when you hear you talk about her and... <laughs> the wonderful person that she was. And I can see behind you there is a white wig, which is obviously a dress-up product of yours. And um, I know that you love a a good dress-up party and every time you do that is part of her with you. Yeah, I think so. I think we just had a – she had a really naughty sense of fun and we had always planned – um after we finished college we would move in together and we mm. joked that we would get a little dog and call it Fenny and then down the street we would say oh gosh Fenny my Fenny is just so dirty and just <laughs> ridiculousness you know it was really she was pretty outrageous and just funny and mm. um and I really I loved that sense of fun and I, after after we lost Maddie things were very very different um I I suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and my life looked really differently to that carefree kind of joyous character that I would probably say I was beforehand, quite sheltered. I'd never lost anybody. And it's something that I still work through today and I probably will for the rest of my life because when you lose somebody who isn't, it wasn't their time, it didn't feel like it was her time, it is haunting and harrowing and uh, it, it definitely left such an imprint on me. I imagine at that time you had no or very little resources um, within your own toolkit to deal with something like this and you say that you're still working it out even now but how did you begin to navigate that huge sense of shock and grief and tragedy Mm, I think I didn't know what PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder was and it felt in a way like I just felt like Maddie had given her depression to me Mm. from what how she had described it to me I felt like somehow I had absorbed her symptoms via osmosis and I, the, the university, um, I went and saw the university counsellor and then I was, uh, it was suggested that I go to another counsellor after that and I did and it just didn't click and it, I didn't connect with these people at all and so I didn't go back and I think that was such a learning for me when I talk to other people who are having their own experience with mental ill health that you just have to keep trying until you find someone that you connect with. And it might be four, five, six different uh, health professionals down the line. But there will be somebody out there that can help. But for me, um, I went undiagnosed for a year. And so my um, PTSD symptoms came through extreme panic or fear. And I would get flashbacks and I would relive uh, that day that Maddie died 
Um, I couldn't sleep. I was hypervigilant. So anything out of the ordinary, be it a car backfiring uh, or a loud noise would make my heart race and I'd break out and sweat. And at the same time as being really hypervigilant, I was also emotionally devoid. It was totally numb. I couldn't feel anything. It was such an extraordinary thing. And my brain just kind of skittered around. So trying to read university things, I would reread the same sentence over and over. Nothing would soak in. And I thought that this was just the way that I would be for the rest of my life. I just thought, oh, well, this is how it is now. And I was referred to a psychologist in Sydney by a dear friend of mine who had been seeing her and and had some terrific results. And I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And my sister actually came with me to the first appointment and just waited outside because I felt really nervous. Um, And that having that little support was really beautiful. And and I met Catherine, my psychologist, and we went through uh, something, a, a talk therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, which basically works to help you change uh, negative thinking and behavioral patterns. And it really helped me to, uh, it just took away my symptoms really quickly. In I think eight to 10 sessions, I lost that. Um, I lost the flashbacks. I lost uh, most of the insomnia and it was really hard because every day I'd wake up in the morning, I'd feel sick with not wanting to go because mm. it was difficult. And we had to go through and relive that experience. And, um, but mum would call me the day of my appointment and hold me accountable and make sure that I went or Jay, my sister would come with me or another friend would remind me that it was important to go. And it really, it just helped. And, underneath the symptoms, I think there was just this huge pool of grief that I hadn't even got to because of the horror of the trauma. But, um, and and that's something that I'll continue to work through probably forever. I'll never stop missing her or wishing things were different. Um, But working through the guilt and the acceptance at that time, it was life-changing. And so when you when you did get through the PTSD and started to sort that out and you said that you um, there was this huge pool of grief that had just been sitting, I suppose that was another hurdle, was it, that you had this, did you have a huge wave of grief that you were plunged into that you needed to work your way through then? It actually um, resurfaces every now and then and, at the time I went through these sessions and I walked out of there, I was like, well, that's me. I'm fixed. Fabulous. How good. And I can now get on with my life. And probably three years later, I then moved overseas and, um, and was living in the UK and I did a ski season in France and I was doing travel journalism over there for two and a half years and having all of these experiences. But it turns out that just because you leave you take your baggage with you. It wasn't just my backpack. It was uh, all of the grief and the sadness that came along and it was triggered uh, in different scenarios when I was homesick or when I drank too much or uh, when I was exhausted and little trickles came through. And then when I moved back home to Australia, I uh, had a bit of a, a bit of a breakdown and it all came back to the surface and I thought, what? I'd, I thought I dealt with all of all of this, but it it is an ongoing process and things are fluid and ever-changing and you think you're on top of it and then it changes again or something else pops up and, and you're reminded of her or you think, I, I, I think I see her down the street, um, the back of her hair or, you know, or a little memory comes up on Facebook. So it is ever-changing and, and I think grief um it doesn't go away but you learn how to deal with it differently and manage it in a way that is unique to you thank you so much for sharing it so candidly and in such um beautifully practical words i'm sure there's lots of people who are learning from this and i have uh so many questions do you are you still okay to talk about it em yeah, absolutely. Yes. I I really like to uh, to talk about her because I feel like it means that she's still here. Yeah. What have you learnt about triggers over this time? I think well, triggers are basically anything that prompts 
an increase in or a return of symptoms. So as I learned to manage my PTSD, I understood what triggered my symptoms and I now know what might trigger mental ill health for me, which um, is a lack of exercise or not eating well or not getting enough sleep or not getting any mind-body practices in like yoga or conscious breathing, things like that, Um, or if I have too many wines or a big party. And I think it's the same for anybody and it's understanding um, and managing what triggers you, whether it's anxiety or um, a panic attack or uh, depression or simply feeling blue. Every experience is valid and I think... Uh, that's what I talk to others about is understanding the patterns of behavior, I suppose, as to what might have triggered this episode or this experience that you, you might be going through right now. Looking back, are there any patterns or behaviors that, you know, you've, you've noticed before? And for me, that those, those patterns are, are really obvious when I start feeling um, shitty or tired or overwhelmed. And on those days when you are um, battling a bit, practically what kind of things do you do to get yourself through? I remember really vividly uh, sitting on my bed and I was having a good sob and Jamie came into my room, my sister, and said, okay, do you want me to hug you or do you want me to kick your butt? And (laughs) <laughs> do you want me to unroll your yoga mat or do you do you want to have a cry? And it really made me understand that there is a different reaction to every cause and also that there is a bit of choice in the matter. And I wallowed for a long time and I used, I didn't use it so much as an excuse, but I definitely fell back to those patterns of behavior regularly and sometimes I did need to be held and and sometimes I still do need to be held and to allow to have a a good cry and to almost have a cleanse and and feel the the rush of endorphins after that but sometimes I need to kick my own butt and go for a run or get on a horse the best medicine in the world uh, or, or get outside and go for a walk or be around animals or get back in the nature and they're very commonsensical things but until you kind of recognize that uh, so f- so now I do um, I do have to make a choice and sometimes it's as much as saying okay I I think that I'm tired or I'm hungry uh, really recognizing the deeper cues sometimes it's as simple as that mm-hmm. and sometimes it's it's more I need to book in a session and I need to talk to somebody and I do have several professionals that I still check in with regularly because they help me manage myself and personal development is ongoing and I can always be a better wife and sister and friend and work colleague and now a mother and that was really important to me last year I did a lot of work a lot of personal development work because I didn't want to hand my baggage over to Huck and to this beautiful little sponge who was there ready to develop and I really I wanted to break the cycle as much as I could and to be really aware of 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 uh, myself and and how I handed over that to the next generation. From the minute I started working with UM, I could sense that mental health was something that was so important to you and that you took incredibly seriously. Um, and now through this, I know exactly why it is. It and it also has propelled you to work in that space. Tell me a little bit about your work with Batir. So I actually wrote an article uh, when I was living in the UK in 2014 about the founder of Batia, Seb Robertson, who's an extraordinary young guy uh, in Sydney. And he founded Batia after suffering with his own mental ill health and he attempted to take his own life a couple of times and luckily uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't able to complete that. And he decided that what would have helped him seek help earlier was if he had heard somebody who looked like him, who sounded like him, who was young, share their own story of how they successfully managed their mental ill health, that might have encouraged him to seek help earlier because it would have broken down the stigma around mental illness and shown him that 
it's okay not to be okay and to go out and and do something about it and that there was help available. And so he started training young people who had successfully managed their own experience to go into schools and universities and share their story. And the audience was then looking at someone who looked like them, who sounded like them. Each speaker is tailored to the school to come from a, a similar background, a similar socioeconomic background as well and uh, make it really incredibly relatable. And it was all about breaking down the stigma, encouraging help-seeking behaviours. And I was uh, really, so that first came onto my radar in 2014. I moved back to Australia, back to Tamworth, and there just so happened to be a job going in Tamworth for the first regional coordinator for Batia, and it was in Tamworth. And it was funded by the White Elephant Winter Ball, a group of amazing people in Tamworth who um, raised funds after losing their mate and, and husband, um, Scotty Campbell, a really popular local young guy. And they had raised enough money to, to put someone on the ground locally. And so at the time, Batia had three people and I was the fourth. And I worked three days a week in Tamworth. And we ended up running Batia programs in, uh, I think it was eight schools and at University of New England. And I shared my own story and I was also the coordinator, so helping to to broach schools and, and get the programs in the schools. And, um, and now it's a national organisation and they are probably uh, the foremost uh, for-purpose organisation working in the space of youth mental health and preventative education. And I was so passionate and I am still so passionate about that. And it really gave me an out an outlay, I suppose, for my grief. And, and I wanted to make sure that nothing was in vain. And if I could help one other young person, whether it was so that they could recognise the signs and symptoms in a friend or they understood it for themselves, um, to, to seek help earlier, then I felt like that was, um, that was really important and that was a job for me. I've never heard before meeting you, I've never heard of it referred to as mental ill health before. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, absolutely. I think we all have mental health and it is a spectrum. So we will experience good days and tough days. We'll experience days when we have excellent mental health, just as we might feel physically fabulous and times when we have poor mental health or mental ill health, just like you might have a broken leg or a dodgy ticker. Um, and a mental illness typically means you have a diagnosis, which might be on one end of the spectrum. But you don't need a diagnosis to have mental ill health. And I think when we're working to break down the stigma surrounding mental ill health and, and encourage more open conversations and help-seeking behaviours, then it's really important not to exclude people who don't necessarily have a diagnosis and their experience is still really valid. And language is so powerful, Sky. And semantics are important. And I think it's really I think it's really important to give everyone permission to know that their experience is valid and important, whether you have a diagnosis or not. So I do refer to it as mental ill health on a broad term. I love that. You talk about help-seeking behaviours. Can you yeah. educate me a bit more, us a bit more about that? Uh, so help-seeking behaviours is basically just seeking help and that can be as... Uh, as initial as having a conversation with your GP and we there are mental health care plans available from your GP and in Australia we're so lucky these mental health care plans enable eight to ten free sessions with a psychologist and it's free it's an amazing resource so it might be um it might be just starting a conversation with your gp perhaps it's going to a trusted friend or family member or loved one and saying you know things are tough and i think i need help that is as simple as a help seeking behavior asking for help uh, perhaps it's calling lifeline or beyond blue or jumping online and having a, a digital chat there are so many resources available and I think it's uh, sometimes and people don't necessarily know that it can be as simple as, as having a yarn with your GP um, or there are those resources available to everybody. So uh, that for me, it's really important to, to encourage people to just start that line of communication. 
Thank you so much, Emma, for sharing all of that stuff. But I can't believe I haven't even asked you about your husband, Adam, and how you guys <laughs> came to be and how you guys met. Like, how did that happen? Yeah, I think in a way it was fate. It does feel very serendipitous. After Maddie died, I was really struggling and living in Sydney and my sister uh, Jamie said come to Threadbow she was working down there at the ski lodge and she said come and stay for a week and I did and she and Adam were working together and uh, at, there was instant I guess chemistry there was like a, a very deep connection pretty much straight away and we have uh, split up three times over the years uh, and had up to three years apart just due to intercontinental distances and visa issues and I've wanted to live here and he's wanted to live in the UK and we got back together in 2017. I was living here in Tamworth working at a local TV station, news station, and I went over to the UK in summer for a wedding and we caught up and I realised that you know, there was still deep feelings there and the same was for him. And I actually came back to Australia. I was like, no, this is crazy. I love it here. I love my home. I love my family. I had a horse. I had a job. I had a little house. I loved it. And then his um, brother invited me to his wedding and I didn't have any leave left. So I went to my boss and she said, you can have two days unpaid leave. So I flew to England on the Friday I, I left on the Thursday got there on the Friday wedding was on the Saturday flew home Sunday got home Monday back to work Tuesday what? and went on live TV that night and it was delirious with exhaustion and I couldn't remember my name and um, and from there we decided it's life's too short and you have to give it a go so yeah. I quit my job and I moved to the UK again and um, and we've been married since last year 2020 and have lived in four different countries in the last three years and it has been an ongoing love story and also it's almost felt like a new relationship as well I met him when I was a really different person I was probably a shadow of myself and over the years we've had to really work on who we are when I'm not um when I don't uh, yeah when I wasn't so broken I suppose and so uh, it has there has been various iterations of our relationship and who we are as we've grown up together over the last 10 nearly 11 years so yeah it, it has been a really amazing thing but as despite coming from different cultures and different communities um, there is a, a, a deep bond and a, and a deep love and I feel very lucky to have found him you guys sound like you lead such a fun life, really. Two, two creative people who love travelling the world and are prepared to do it. It just sounds like the dream for, for anyone. And, and so regardless of COVID, if we just imagine that COVID didn't exist, do you guys foresee that that will be your life, that you will continue to be nomadic in a sense and moving around like, like you did when you were growing up? Well, I would uh, recommend if anybody is considering intercontinental love to only date an orphan because it is so hard having uh, someone sacrifice on, on one side with the family. And for Adam and I, we both hold such strong family values. It was something that brought us together. But also it's really tough because one of us has to live away from our home and uh Yes, we, we are two creatives and we have travelled the world, but it certainly hasn't been easy. There have been some tough, tough times and we're both home, homebodies, believe it or not, and um, desperate to put down some roots. But I do envision that, envision, envisage that we will uh, have a bit of back and forth because we both are so strongly tied to our homes and and love them so fiercely with all our heart as much as we love each other. So uh, I would imagine we'll come back and forth. Ads will probably always uh, have his art here and, and work and very lucky that we can both work 
remotely to an extent and and his is probably a little bit tricky I just take my laptop he needs a welder and a chainsaw so <laughs> it's not so easy to chuck in the in the, in hand luggage. <laughs> the uh, overhead hand luggage um but I think yeah we will to a sense always be coming back and forth maybe it'll all just work out like serendipity does you mentioned serendipity before and there does seem to be a bit of it that weaves through your story like you met ads and then that batty job came up in Tamworth which was home Mm. and do you believe Mm. in it I do I am a bit of a fatalist and I believe in in Vedic meditation they call it following the charm and the charm pops up in odd places and if you're quiet enough um, and don't just dis- aren't always distracted by the white noise of life the charm does pop up in, in odd places and I have allowed myself to follow that charm and it hasn't always been easy wish that I had settled down the road from mum though at the moment I am down the corridor from mum so I can't complain too much but yeah I do think that life happens to us and for us and the universe is kind of looking out for for us if if we let it so I um I definitely believe in serendipity and allow myself to be open to it and try and be a little bit fluid which isn't easy to make plans (laughs) well em thank you so much for sharing everything that you shared here today and I feel so lucky to work with you I absolutely love working with you on this podcast and I'm sure that everyone (laughs) I'm sure that everyone feels very lucky to know a little bit more about you so thank you thank you so much it's been such a privilege wow As I said, the more I get to know Em, the more I fiercely respect all she does. You know, when we recorded this interview, she was severely sleep-deprived and how she strung together two words, let alone a whole interview, about some very important issues, I just don't know. Thank you so much, Em, for being so raw and vulnerable and for every little detail that you shared with us. Thank you also to our sponsor for this episode, SG Offroad. And as a parting note, you now have less than a week to get sorted for Mother's Day. What could be easier than jumping online to grazyher.com.au and ordering a subscription for your mum and maybe even for yourself? We would love that. I'll be back next week with another Life on the Land story. 